Mark's Gospel, chapter 14, beginning in verse 66, and we'll seek to advance to chapter 15, verse 15, as we come to closing out here of the Gospel of Mark. It's been a great journey over the last, just almost a year now, uh, to get through here with all the interruptions, but we're, we're going to make it. Hallelujah. Father, may your word just come alive in our minds and our hearts now, in Jesus' name. Denying the truth. Many of us may be familiar with this quote from former Senator of New York, Daniel Moynihan. He sort of uh, became the poster child for this one quote. Everyone is entitled to his own opinions, but he is not entitled to his own facts. And that's well said. Truth is not a relative thing that can be adjusted to our own desires. If one wants to believe a certain thing contrary to the truth, it doesn't change the truth. The truth that was true 50 or 100 years ago is still true today. It doesn't change with time. Truth is not some malleable thing we can manipulate and mold to match our own personal preferences. At this time in history, the general public is being lied to on a massive scale. It's unfortunate because the results of relativity and relative truth and moral relativity is confusion, ignorance, and ultimately the destruction and breakdown within society. Human beings do not prosper in deception in time, it will lead to destruction because of the constant flow of propaganda through the mainstream media. Our American culture has been ushered down the slippery slope of relative truth. We are adrift. We have lost our moral compass to our own peril. And when the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ, cut loose these moorings from the scripture, there's no way to avoid the coming collision with the ultimate truth. Moral relativity has a grip on the minds of the masses and has crept into the church of Jesus Christ. And it's because the pastoral ministry has forsaken the ministry of the teaching of the Word of God. And the absolutes that are within the Scriptures have been abandoned. It's now the opinions of men that are influencing the flock of God. It is cowardice in the pulpits of America American churches that have compromised the truth of the scriptures for the acceptance of the world. We want to feel comfortable. We want the people of the world to feel comfortable in our gatherings. We don't want to offend anyone. We're more concerned with what people think than what God thinks. Pastors are so concerned about not offending anyone, they've forgotten what offends the Lord. My friend, this is a position of non-faith. We are on a collision course with reality and it's going to shatter many lives. Now we know the nature of our God. We know how that He's a God of love and care. We've all experienced that and we'll continue to experience that. But we also know that being a God of justice, He will confront these things 
and he'll confront the deceptions that have led to this immorality that's within our world. I could not agree more with the quote, this quote from jo Thomas Jefferson. I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and that his justice will, cannot sleep forever. God is patient, slow to anger, but when his ire is aroused, no one can stay his hand. And truth is always the first casualty of war, and we are at war. This is World War Three. It's not with bullets, but it's with words and misinformation. We are seeking to be overrun by our enemy. There are those in the church that think, oh, well, we can't be getting too political. The church isn't supposed to be involved in politics. I couldn't agree more. We're not supposed to be involved in politics. But we are to be involved in the government because we are the fourth leg as I've said before so many times Jesus was never involved in politics you're exactly right but you do realize it was politicians that put him to death it was the political movement of the establishment hooked up with Rome that led to his crucifixion and truly as Paul said to the believers in Rome, we are sheep to the slaughter. Paul, think of all the churches that he planted, all the great works that were done by his ministry team throughout his ministry years, and then taken captive by Rome, and then ultimately as a Roman citizen he was beheaded. But before he left, <laughs> the testimony was, all those in Asia have forsaken me. What does he mean by that? Well, we don't know completely all, but we, if we understand his missionary trips, he planted a lot of churches in Asia Minor, Ephesus being sort of the Mecca there, and their surrounding home churches that were planted, Colossae, etc., many churches in Asia Minor. Is he referring to those who followed him around, the Judaizers who would seek to undermine his ministry and bring, mix grace with law and bring, bringing the members of the church back into bondage under the law? Possibly. They gave in to the heresy. Having, as he says to the Galatians, having begun in the spirit, they were now seeking to be fulfilled by works of the law in the flesh, strength of the flesh. If the church of Jesus Christ is ever going to prosper, it was because we will return to our moorings, which are not by word, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. We have to learn to walk and live in the spirit of God. We build our relationship upon the rock. Lean on him with all our hearts. We know that the first casualty in war is always truth. We need truth. In a court of law, there are those who believe in something false without evidence, and that is referred to as the fallacy of invincible ignorance. In plain language, which is what I need, it would be expressed that the claimant 
in argument shows either evidence or reasons demonstrating the truth of some claim and the challenger simply refuses to acknowledge the reasons or the evidences thereof. It is this invincible ignorance that is very common in our world today. Those who obscure the truth conflate the facts using abstruse or difficult wording to make things hard to be understood. Let me give you an example of how much words and complicating, complicated sentences can blur the subject matter. This is a recent line from a detective drama show years ago. Quote, I have a hunch that our grieving widower is in fact a duplicitous, double-dealing, two-faced, perfidious, deceitful womanizer and that he's misrepresenting the factual sequence of events on that fateful night. Wait a minute, Joe. Let me see if I understand what you're saying. You think he's lying. It's just a hunch, Frank. I mean, that's exactly what we have today. Speaking in verbiage, unclear. Oh, wait, what, what are you really saying? And so as a result, people are confused. There's destruction and destructive things undealt with and unconfronted with our culture, unable to deal with these things. Because we're not forthright, we're not clear, and, and it's done on purpose. And this is what we're going to see happen with our characters this morning here. The denial of truth. Peter, a believer, we'll spend most of our time with him, since we're believers. We definitely don't want to fall into the same trap that Peter did. We're going to see the denial of the truth by Pilate, by the establishment, and by the multitude. This is not something that's isolated for one people group or just believers. It's something that human nature is prone to, that of denying the truth. So let's pick it up in verse 66 of chapter 14, Mark's Gospel. Now as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You are with Jesus of Nazareth. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are saying. And he went out on the porch, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him again, and began to say to those who stood by, This is one of them. But he denied it again. And a little later, those who stood by said to Peter again, Surely you are one of them, for you're Galilean, and your speech shows it. And then he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. The second time the rooster crowed, and then Peter called to mind the word that Jesus had said to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. 
And when he thought about it, he wept. And so the first denial is the servant girl denying the truth before all. He was really denying that he was with Jesus. What are you talking about? The second denial, it wasn't just the servant girl, but she's involving the others that are around. He denied this time a little bit more so, with an oath. I do not know the man. And then the third denial, to all that stood by, not just the servant girl, but everyone, denied by cursing and swearing, but he, his speech gave him away. The Bible is very clear on how God will judge you and how God will judge me. By our words, we will be condemned. And by our words, we will be justified. Out of the mouth, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Whatever comes out of my mouth is a result of what is in my heart. And so when you catch yourself saying things that are naughty, (laughs) unloving, that should be an indication that your heart is not correct. There's something that needs to be adjusted. Now we all have these occasions. Let's not play self-righteous here. We all fall into the trap. We all lose our cool. We lose our anger. And we're, you know, we have hatred that can build up because of resentment. All kinds of things that happen when we're wounded, right? But we have to recognize those things for what they are. And if something comes out, it should be an indicator, oh, my heart's not right. I've, over, I've stepped over the line. I need to draw back. I need to recognize that. I need to repent. See, Christians... Don't just repent once. We have the initial repentance and we receive Jesus and we're born again, but we have to repent all the time. I don't know about, well, maybe you don't, but I do. So, okay. You know, you you just, oh, that stupid flesh, you know, can really get the best of us sometimes. But that's how you deal with it. You acknowledge what's coming out like, "Uh uh-oh, oh, and then apologize where it's appropriate and needed and repent and do that quickly. You know, the quicker you repent and and acknowledge it, the better off you are. Because if it remains, the more time that it remains undealt with, the more damage it can do in your psyche and in your heart. You know, nobody likes, it's called guilt. (laughs) Nobody likes to carry guilt. We're not built for that. God doesn't want us to carry that. He wants us to deal with it. And so, by our words we'll be condemned, by our words we'll be justified. That's uh, Matthew 12, 37. Proverbs 6, 2 through 5, and you know my manner is to give you lots of biblical support for what I say, because it's not my opinion that really matters. It's what God's Word says. We answer to Him. Proverbs 6, 2 through 5. You're snared by the words of your mouth, and you're taken by the words of your mouth. So do this, my son. Deliver yourself. Go, for you have to come into the hand of, for you've come into the hand of your friend. Go, Humble yourself, plead with your friend, give no sleep to your eyelids, nor slumber to your eyelids. Deliver yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, and like a bird from the hand of the fowler. And so there's this scripture that supports dealing with those kinds of things right away, as quick as possible. As quick as you begin to realize that there's something fostering within your heart that is not acceptable to God, and it is not good for you. Luke 19, 22, 23, uh, as Jesus said, uh, out of your mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant. Uh, 
You knew that I was an austere man, collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. And why did you not put my money in the bank, that at my coming I might have collected it with interest? Notice the phrase there, out of your own mouth, I will judge you. So how is it that God will judge you? How is it that God will judge me? God will judge us by our own measurement. It will obviously be against His perfect standard of righteousness and truth. But it will be how I judged others. So, and this is that thing, you know, we're all, those of you who have walked with the Lord for any amount of time know that when you begin to see certain things that bug you about certain brothers or sisters, it's usually because it's something I've got to deal with in my own life. But my sin always looks uglier on somebody else than it does on me, you know. And so I want to project. But in reality, it's something that God wants to deal with me. And so that is very humbling, by the way, to admit that. But that's what the way we are. That's fallen nature in its core. And as we're told uh, and exhorted in the scriptures to walk in humility before God. It's so much nicer and easier on us if we just break and admit the truth and confess. And then it's gone. That's what I love about the, God's ways. He doesn't beat you over the head with it and condemn you and rub it in your face. As soon as you admit it and confess it, it's gone. That is a wonderful blessing that we have being his children. Uh, Solomon had an understanding about humility, especially in the assembly of the people. Ecclesiastes 5.1 Walk prudently when you go to the house of God. Draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they do evil. Do not be rash with your mouth. And let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore let your words be few. For a dream comes through much activity, and a fool's voice is known by his many words. And when you make a vow, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. It's better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin, nor say to, before the messenger of God, Oh, that was an error. Why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the work of your hands? For in the multitude of dreams and in many words there is no vanity. There is also vanity. But fear God. So very important that we just take the scripture to heart. We're so much better in doing so. In this case with Peter, it is so important that we don't miss the phrase that when this came to pass and the rooster crowed, he remembered the words of Jesus. And that's really what happens in our life. As we're walking through the earth, we know we get dirty. Our feet get dirty, and we soil ourselves because of who we are and our fallenness. We're to remember the words of Jesus. The words of Jesus are true. Truth will always break us down. We should never deny the truth about ourselves or about other people or about the situation we're in. It can be very harmful if we do so. What we can learn from this story and his fall, if you will, is that we cannot go against the word of God and prosper. There is no way. 
if you a person thinks within his heart, well, you know, that's good for everybody else, but I don't really need to apply that to my life. Well, good luck, preacher. You can do that if you want, but, you know, hey, oh, no. You will not prosper. If you're knowing the Word of God and not doing it, you'll, you'll not prosper. Peter had been resisting the words of Christ ever since Jesus told him that Satan desired to sift him. He refu- Actually, Peter refused to believe that he was vulnerable to falling and to failure. He thought he could disagree with Jesus and stand strong against any opposition that might come against him or Jesus. And in reality, he was trusting in himself, his own ability, spiritual, mental, physical, trusting in himself that he could pass the temptations without the grace of God. And there are a lot of people, well, I don't need religion. I don't either. You don't need religion. But you do need a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's just a big crutch. Really? So how is it that you're going to handle eternity, my friend? What will you do when you take your last breath? Will you save your own soul? Will the money and the wealth that you've accumulated deliver you in that day? I think not. Jesus is not a crutch. He's our friend. He's our Savior. He's the one who took the guilt and took our place. We have to, in order to avoid falling into this temptation to deny the Lord, I think there's a few things that we can observe about what happened here in this whole context of Peter's life. Remember in Luke 22 Uh, 31-34 Jesus told him look Simon Satan's asked for you you have to remember the enemy is after you oh you mean there's a boogeyman waiting by every bush to get me on a serious note though our fight is not against flesh and blood but against powers and principalities and the rulers of the darkness Satan the adversary is playing for keeps. Now he knows as a believer, you as a believer, he cannot snatch you out of the Father's hand. But he knows that he can tempt you and try you and attack you and make your life fruitless. He wants to distract us from the main thing. And the main thing is to keep our eyes focused on Christ and to walk with Him as close as we can. If we do that, He can't touch us. And everything that does happen to us always comes through the filter of God's love. Nothing that we experience in this life as a believer comes at us without first going through the filter of God's love. And that should be taken as a great comfort to to you and I. But what we see in the words that Jesus gave to Peter and he resisted in reality, let me say this, if you are, you are a resistor of the scriptures and you have trouble reading the Bible, in fact, you don't really want to read the Bible, the enemy will eat your sack lunch in a heartbeat. We do not stand one in our own strength and in, in any way can we overcome the enemy without the grace of God. We need the armor of God and we need the presence of the Holy Spirit that we, so that we don't fall victim to the enemy's attacks. 
This is the promise that God has given to us as his children. No weapon formed against us will prosper. And we've got to embrace those promises. But if you're outside Christ and you continue to resist it and you're rebellious, you're outside the umbrella of God's protection, you are fair game for the enemy. He is the prince and power of this world and he is looking to devour and destroy. He comes to steal, to kill, and destroy God's people, God's created ones. Whether you're saved or unsaved, he is out for mankind. And he's no respecter of persons. Understand that this is serious stuff. Peter was, number one, he was ill-prepared in his personal walk because he was walking in self-confidence. Oh, I'm ready to go to death and to prison with you, Lord. Well, he thought he was. Number two, he was impatient. He was unwilling to wait for the Lord's purposes to unfold. These guys have thrones of glory in mind. They don't know this whole thing of death and resurrection. Oh, he's just spiritualizing again. There he goes again. You know, they're thinking, they're they're battling and jockeying for position. If you read this whole moment, this last week, the disciples are, who's the greatest among them? And they were forgot that the greatest among them wasn't one of them. It was Jesus. It's still that way today. He's the greatest one among us. I can hardly wait. Hope I get the right side, you know. John, you can have the left side, but I'm taking the right side, you know, the the important side. I'm the most important. That's what happens when we're in the flesh. We just, we just get weird. Thirdly, he did not believe the words of Jesus about himself. Let me give you the evidence of that. Self-confidence would be 1429. He's more trustworthy than every, anybody else in the group. Boastfulness. You notice the I factor. You notice that middle letter of the word pride is I. Just in the middle letter of sin is I. It's, it might be a connection there. Number three, prayerlessness. Rather than praying with Jesus, he, he passed out. In the darkest hours, the, the, the hardest hours... He was sleeping. Verse 58, we see that he was following at a distance. Now this is very present in the church. And this is something that we all need to repent of at times. We, Well, you know, we had a good day at church and I've done my spiritual exercises for, for, for the week. Now we can go do whatever we want. And you can do that and many Christians do that. It's just a once a week type of thing. And don't push me any further than that or I'm borderlining on not liking you, you know. Well, if you do that, and you have that kind of lifestyle, then you're going to be following the Lord at a distance. I don't know about you, but under the circumstances, especially what's going on in our culture, I don't want to be at a distance from Jesus. I want Him right here, right now, moment by moment. Why did He follow Jesus at a distance? I mean, they're dragging Jesus away to this fake trial. Was he ashamed of Jesus? Was he intimidated? Was he controlled by fear? Probably all the above, maybe. Who knows? But he was falling at a distance. Then he went the next step. 
of falling in with the wrong crowd. He was sitting outside in verse 69. He's no longer on the inside looking out. He's on the outside looking in. And this is very true of the church today. You might be in this building, but you might be on the outside looking in. What are these people? <laughs> Wait a minute. Why, why are these people so happy? Why is, why is every face filled with, except mine, with joy? What is this love stuff? Love. The love of God. What? Oh, come on. That would indicate you're on the outside looking in. God wants you on the inside looking out at the world who's in great need of what he's, the treasure that he's placed in our hearts. These are not pointing out any of these to condemn anyone. We've all fallen prey to these things because we are fallen creatures. But it's important that we acknowledge them and we see them for what they are so that we can be on the inside, close to the Lord. Sitting on the outside, he fell in with the wrong crowd. He's with the wrong company. What company are you, who do you feel most comfortable with? This is a good indicator of where you're at. Are you on the inside or the outside? If you are comfortable with being around Christians and that's where you're, you can relax like, well, yeah, there's a, there's a kindredness there. Or if you get around Christians, you're like, well, you know, can't wait to get out of here. I'm going to go play. I'm going to go be by myself. I don't know, I'm just saying. Something to think about. And then verse 70 is simply denying the truth. What Jesus said, what God will always tell us is the truth. God cannot lie. He would never lie to us. It's impossible for God to lie. So whatever he says, as much as we may disagree with it or not initially believe it, nonetheless it is true and will always remain true. And then, verse 71, just backsliding back into bad habits, he began to curse and swear. Your speech, as I said earlier, pay attention to what is coming out of your mouth. If this bad language begins to come from you, or coarse language, then you need to know you need a spiritual tune-up. You need to get back, humble yourself, and ask God to do a little transforming in your soul and in your heart. You know, we're, our speech is to be seasoned with salt and full of love and grace. The words that came from Christ were always words of grace. And he always told the truth in a very loving way. Number eight, he re- always remember the words of Jesus. And when you do that, it will bring you to repent and turn back to God. He'll, he left where he was. And this is key to repentance. He left the crowd, the poor influence, bad company corrupts good manners. He left that and he went in brokenness before God and acknowledged his error. We should thank Peter and we should thank the Lord that who has he authored this gospel through Mark, probably. Mark probably was the amanuensis that just, you know, sort of wrote down what Peter was saying and all. 
that he was so real and transparent about what went on. It's hard to be real and transparent when you're not put in a good light. But it's through his failure and his honesty and integrity about himself that allows us to see ourselves and to, to, to repent and, and turn to God. Because we see how the Lord, though he was so discouraged and broken over the crucifixion, and Jesus then restored them and restored him so beautifully there after the resurrection there at the Sea of Galilee. Beautiful story of God's love. And you see how God just worked with Peter and loved him. It's special, very special. And now as we close out, I, I, didn't, I wanted to f- focus on that because that's, what, that's where we live. That's who we are. We're no different than Peter in that regard. But Pontius Pilate, you know, we see in the beginning of chapter 15 here, the willingness of Jesus. That's really the I want, I want to focus there. The willingness of Jesus to die for the ungodly. His willingness to surrender himself into the hands of sinners. Understanding full well what they were about to do to him. Immediately in the morning, chapter 15, the chief priests held consultation of the elders and the scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Now wanting to stamp of approval from the legal court of Pilate, if you will. And then Pilate asked him, Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And he answers and said to him, it is as you say. The chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. Then Pilate asked him again, saying, Do you answer nothing? You see how many things they testify against you? But Jesus still answered nothing, so Pilate marveled. This section, we see that and throughout Mark's Gospel, the writer is seeking to reveal the identity. We mentioned this early on as we begin the book. His intent is to reveal the identity that the Son of God, Son of Man, the Jesus Christ Messiah was Yahweh come in the flesh. And so the questions that Jesus has answered during his interrogation, both before Annas, Caiaphas, and now here, with Pilate was his identity. All the other accusations and all the other things were irrelevant because he knew in answering anything it would just they would just twist his words. They weren't seeking truth at all. They were denying the truth right in front of them. As he said, I am the truth. I am the way. I am the life. He had nothing to do with those other things. Why answer? But identity, it is as you say. Are you the king of the Jews? Always oh, more than the king of the Jews. See, if you read the other Gospels, you realize that Pilate, like, well, I know what's going on here. We see in verse 10, he knew that they were handing him over. And let's just read that and finish up our reading. 
Now, at the feast, he was accustomed of releasing one of the prisoners to them, whomever they requested. And there was one named Barabbas who was chained with his fellow rebels, and they committed murder, had committed murder in rebellion. And the multitude, crying aloud, began to ask him to, to do just as he had always done for them. But Pilate answered them, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. And the chief priests stirred up the crowd, and so they would rather release Barabbas to them. Pilate answered and said to them again, What then do you want me to do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? So they cried out again, Crucify him. And then Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, Crucify him. And so Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them and delivered Jesus. And after he had scourged him, to be crucified. So in the other Gospels, Matthew, and then also in Luke, uh, we have, as soon as he heard that he was from Galilee, a uh, Galilean, and from Galilee, they sent him over to Herod. And nothing happened there. Jesus remained silent. And then they brought him back again. So that that is slipped in into this in, in the other Gospels. Moving on, uh, there's a lot in regards to to the conversation that actually went on with Pilate. You can find that information in John 18. It's very interesting, the little exchange about truth, which we don't have time for this morning, but it's a good, be good for you to look at that. So Pilate denied the truth. Really denied the actuality of what that meant for Jesus to be the king of the Jews and to allow the king to be crucified. He denied the truth, the true identity of who he was before him. And then the truth that was denied by the establishment to actually bring him to this point. Think of the truth that they denied. They considered Jesus Christ demon-possessed. He has a, a demon, and by the demons, he's able to cast out the demons, you know. Mark 2, Jesus had authority to forgive sins. They didn't like that. Or that he was Lord of the Sabbath. Their little law, which was a big law for you to break if you were a Jew at that time. Boy, it was all about control. You break the Sabbath, we're stoning you. That kind of brings people in the line under you. If you really valued your life anyway. Jesus had authority over that. That meant his authority was greater than theirs. They didn't take that too well. He had authority to heal on the Sabbath, no less. That's Mark 3. Mark 3 also, the authority to cast out demons, which they had a lot of trouble doing because they had little faith. In fact, probably no faith. At least no faith in the Lord Jesus. Jesus had authority over nature. He worked many miracles, stuff that they could not do. Jesus said and did things that were hidden from the foundation of the world. Amazing. No one like Jesus had ever appeared on in human history before, and none will ever appear until he returns again, not as a suffering servant, but as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen to that. 
Jesus' authority over nature, that of working miracles, and then ultimately, complete and total and ultimate authority over death. Mark 5, how he raised several from the dead. So obviously the establishment was envious of Jesus because he had the true authority, only the authority that they would dream about having, the influence that he had upon the nation at the height of his ministry. And they were afraid of him. They were afraid of losing their position, John tells us in his gospel. There was no area of life that Jesus Christ did not have full and supreme authority over. Jesus Christ is the ultimate authority for mankind. So Jesus was a constant threat to the nation and whatever it would take they would do anything to remove him from their presence. So thus they turned him over to Pilate. But then we see in verses 6 through 15 there lastly that it was also the multitude that denied the truth. I mean my goodness gracious this man and all that he did in that list that I just went through of all the miracles that he performed. Oh. And to realize you want to crucify him? Why were they siding with the establishment? Were they brainwashed? Had they been watching too much fake news? I mean, hello. He's the Messiah. He's proven it. His life, his words, his, his works. And yet, I mean, if you did not kowtow to the establishment, you were excommunicated. You could not sacrifice. You would be left out. God had ordained that the worship of himself would come through the sacrificial system and observing the law of Moses out of loyal love. And to be excommunicated was to be excommunicated from the presence of God. They were the gatekeepers. And the people realized that. So in order to stay in favor with them, they had to go along. I think you could probably draw some parallels with what's going on in our culture here without me becoming too political there. You know, we thought this whole thing would, that we've been going through for the last year and a half, you know, would, you know, if we just go along, it'll go away. Do not be deceived. The truth is, if we continue to go along, it will never go away. I would ask you to just turn off the mainstream media if you are listening to it. Get your head in the scriptures. Pray and ask the Lord for discernment. Pray and ask, and this is what I do. And I don't know all the truth. I'm, I'm just putting that out there. But do your homework. Pray that the Lord gives you discernment of what's going. This is this is come from what I hear. I don't know if it's true. I, I hope it's not. But what it, there's coming another lockdown, another mask mandate. You know. This is intended to be divisive. This is intended to destroy the church. One of the things because the voice of the church. Because the Bible tells us the church 
is the pillar and ground of the truth. It is our responsibility as brothers and sisters to assemble, to be together, to love one another, to support one another. And we are going, I don't know about other churches, but we're going to continue to do this. I'm not thrown in the towel. And I'm not going to submit to lawless, tyrannical leaders. And I'm not inciting insurrection here. I'm just telling you, we have an obligation to, to follow the law. And the law of the land is the Constitution. And that's all I'm saying. Read the Constitution. Read the Bill of Rights. Go ahead and look over the Declaration of Independence. You didn't get to learn it in school because they didn't teach you. Now would be a good time to refresh your memory. These are perilous times. These are hard times. I do not want to deny the truth. I want to live in the truth and live for the truth. And I trust you do too. Shall we pray? Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that you've made provisions for our failures and our shortcomings. We thank you for the power of your blood to forgive our sins, Lord. That you were willing to go to that cross. And even now your willingness to indwell us by your spirit, though we are fallen creatures, Lord. Thank you for the privilege of allowing us to partake of your divine nature, Lord. And I'm asking that you'd fill each one of us with your spirit, God. For as you said, Lord, the, your words are so true. The, flesh, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And also that the flesh, the fallen human nature, profits nothing. It's only what we do and how we live in the spirit that really matters. How we love one another and how we care for one another, Lord. And so please, give us your spirit. We pray you'd command your blessing upon Calvary Chapel here. I pray you'd bless this family with your presence, with your power, with your love, with your shield of protection, Lord. We're no match for the enemy. Please clothe us, Lord. Hide us under the shadow of your wing, as it were, Lord. Guide our steps every day, moment by moment, Lord. Shall we stand as we close? Amen.